The devil was once the most favored of the host of angels serving the Lord. But pride welled in his breast. He thought it unseemly for him to serve. The devil and his band of followers who likewise suffered the sin of pride were defeated in battle by the Lord and his host and were banished to the outermost depths of hell never to know the presence of the Lord or look on heaven again. Smarting with his wounds, but all the more swollen with pride, the devil cried out from the depths, It is better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. The devil proclaimed what was lost in heaven would be gained on earth. He said, My offspring, the gargoyles, will one day rule the Lord's works, earth and man. And so it came to pass that while man ruled on earth, the gargoyles waited, lurking, hidden from the light. Reborn every 600 years in man's reckoning of time, the gargoyles joined battle against man to gain dominion over the earth. In each coming, the gargoyles were nearly destroyed by men who flourished in greater numbers. Now it has been so many hundreds of years that it seems the ancient statues and paintings of gargoyles are just products of man's imagination. In this year, with man's thoughts turned toward the many ills he has brought upon himself, man has forgotten his most ancient adversary, the gargoyles. the bloody pit i am rod barnett and tonight i have returning guest john hudson how's the world treating you sir you know it's treating me okay no no big complaints these days yeah i see i see you've been able to get a haircut i have yeah we um started to slowly phase in a few people working at our office and while no one ever told me to get a haircut <laughs> it was heavily implied i thought well Clients might actually see me, and they may not want the Unabomber showing up <laughs> to bring them their documents. Or uh, yeah, yeah, so, I can see that. So I did get a haircut, shaved. Oh, I had noticed. Yeah, you remember the beard? I had a pretty good COVID. Oh, did you beard. have a COVID beard going? Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, I had a very um, Manson-ish goatee. <laughs> Like, you think Manson when he's going up for parole, you know? like. Well, you know, you're all right until you start thinking that it's a good idea to buy mustache wax and use the mustache mustache wax to uh, turn the goatee into a pointed thing. Well, I actually did that a couple of oh times. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the bad thing is, Laura, I, I made the mistake of standing around where Laura could hear it. You know, I'm really just doing this to be an asshole. <laughs> She said, wait a minute. Don't ever admit that. <laughs> Don't ever admit well, that. Well, I didn't know she could hear me. But the other thing was that, of course, right now you have to wear a mask anytime you go out. So yeah. that sort of defeats the purpose of, oh, yeah, good point. you know, hat hair is one thing, but mask mustache is pretty wax bad. on it is just like, yeah. you look like an insect that's in a windshield. <laughs> so, it's yeah. so I just didn't do a whole lot of that. But yeah, I have, have groomed. Actually, I did it just for you. Well, that's mighty sweet of you. I noticed you didn't brush your teeth. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) What's the big idea? What's the big idea? Well, I suspect, unfortunately, that uh, even though we're recording this during the mighty month of October, I probably won't get this thing edited and out until the beginning of November. But have you been watching anything interesting in the uh, the beloved lead-up to Halloween? You know, I haven't 
done as much movie watching as I would like. Um, we've been binging uh, Shit's Creek. That's been probably been our biggest. I got to do that. Yeah, uh, it's really good. Uh, Laura had already been through it. And um, she kept saying, you'd like this. And I thought, well, yeah, I'm sure I would. I love everybody involved with it. Yep. And so finally, she's like, okay, I want to watch this again. Let's go. And so we're, we're almost to the end of the series. I think we've got about five episodes to go. And it's, it's fantastic. So if you, ha- and you haven't watched it out there, you should. I, I fully intend to myself. Um, I've, been, uh, I've been catching up with... Uh, I, I try to use October as, a, as an attempt to catch up with some movies that uh some horror movies that i have not seen mm-hmm. as yet that for whatever reason i've just been putting off and uh got a surprise uh i i was not aware until just a few weeks ago that they had been producing sequels to tales from the hood i think there's the third one i think the third one just came out but what that meant is that i was already one behind <laughs> Even if the so third you couldn't was, watch the third. I mean, how would you keep up with the story? I was like, I need, yeah, exactly. So I had to back up <laughs> and finally watch the second one, which apparently came out uh, two years ago. So after having like let that whole idea for a franchise lay fallow for two decades, they produced two new ones in two years. And I have to say, I hope the third one is as much fun as the second one because I really enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah, and you're ready and you're up to date on the storyline. <laughs> yes, yes, one the storyline. Funniest movie watching experiences I think I've ever heard. My little sister took her boys to see uh, Return of the King, uh-huh. and she'd never seen any of the other movies. So she says, <laughs> I saw him watching this, and I have no idea for three and a half hours what's going on, who, who are these, these people, people are. <laughs> so Everybody's so- got a beard, I know that. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> Well, what I what uh, I love the original Tales from the Hood, and and this the number two is not as good as the first one. Um, two two things I will say that I think um, stand out as kind of negatives for me was one, some of the segments, the the, the filming choices uh, are overlit. Some sometimes not in every segment and not in every scene, but there are times, especially when they go outside and it is you know it's daylight. Don't get me wrong, it's not supposed to be day for night or anything like that. It's daytime. But it's just so, I don't know, flatly lit. Mm-hmm. It's got that look of uh, somebody not thinking hard enough about how to light for, for I'm assuming, digital video. I mean, it, it looks, it, it, the movie looks just fine. It's just that there are times when I'm thinking they're not putting enough care into lighting this like it's a movie. They're just flat lighting it. Yeah. And the other thing is, a pro- is, is the same problem that anybody uh, would have with these movies, which is, you know, part of the point of almost every story is racism to one degree or another. But um, it's it's unfortunate that they have to. They, they, I, I wish they wouldn't cartoon up the white scumbags quite so much mm-hmm. because they cartoon them up so much that it's like, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it. They're 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 assholes. But the white asshole racist bastard doesn't also have to be a sexist bastard who's like squeezing his his secretary's ass right in front of the camera and being, you know, he doesn't have to be also a sexist prick. It's like, let's be a little bit more subtle about it mm-hmm. so that, because the, the subtleties and the other characters are, are right there on display and it's like, I understand we're wanting to push that button and that's the button you want to push and I'm all there for it. But it's like, for so, for so many interesting, subtle things going on and the way the story is told and the way some of the characters are portrayed, to have the, uh, to have the, uh, the villains be so gigantically cartoonish and it's like it, I, I kind of had that feeling with the with the original film too, and it's like 
this is trust me, this is not a white guy saying why all the villains got to be racist. It's like no, <laughs> I understand that that's the point of Tales from the Hood. Yeah, yeah, you it's, say that like it's that if they were less cartoonish. <laughs> Then I think the point would be even even better made because then you're not then it then it doesn't have to be such overt they don't have to be such overt assholes that it's impossible to miss you know yeah, you say all that but luckily the listeners can't see that MAGA hat you're wearing <laughs> oh, God. yeah exactly oh of course you know, <laughs> you know I'm wearing the oh yeah well now you don't have shutter do you no I do not. I've thought about it a few times, but I just I don't know that I would be able to. Uh, I don't know that I'd be able to get enough out of it to justify having it for. I mean, maybe for a few months, but I don't know. It's like forty dollars a year, so it's not too bad. Well, it's not too bad. Yeah. They I, a pretty good little movie that I guess premiered maybe a month or two ago on there. It's a, only fifty five minutes or so called Host. Really, and it's a really clever little movie that's made for zero money. It's uh, set up like a Zoom call. It's during the pandemic. All right. And this group of friends has a weekly Zoom call just to keep up you know, with each other and see what's going on since they can't see each other in person. And they decide to have a Zoom seance. <laughs> and something goes wrong. So okay. and the entire thing is shot through a Zoom call. You see this, the different screens for each person. And it's all seen through the either their phone or yeah. their laptop screen and it's got some pretty good little little moments in it. Well that's interesting. and it sounds like if it's only fifty five minutes, they knew not to not to stretch this premise out to a point where they oh, would yeah. have to they would have to break it. So Yeah, it's good. It it's you know not it didn't it doesn't reinvent the wheel, but it's nice to see something where no money but lots of creativity came up with something pretty good. Well, it kind of reminds me. Did you ever get to see Unfriended from a few years ago? No, no. All the the entire movie is uh, as if you're watching. Uh, I can't remember if it's Skype or not, but if it's not Skype in the film, then it's a Skype-like thing, and it's like what you're describing. It's a group of friends who are getting together this one particular evening. Uh, I can't remember if it was for some kind of school thing or whatever it was. They're they were getting together to to talk about this. Like four or five of them. When I first heard of the the the. Uh, the premise of Unfriended, I was I was thinking, I don't know that this, I don't know that they could get an hour and twenty minutes out of this, and I have to admit, Unfriended surprised me by being a pretty damn good little movie. Huh. It shocked the shit out of me that because I've, it was effective. I was never that interested in seeing it. Now, it's it's worth seeing. It really is. Check it out. Uh, I don't think it's a classic, but I know that uh, for I think it was probably the first of that type of film that you're describing, where the whole idea is that. Everybody's talking on an internet video mm-hmm. call, and I know that there have been some after that, but I'm not I'm not checked any of them out, um, including I think at least something that got turned into a sequel of Unfriended that may or may not have been originally written as a sequel, but uh, like, I'm not seeing any of the others. But that one I was really shocked. It's like if nothing else, it was the first to take a stab at that type of storytelling, and uh, I, I remember it being extraordinarily effective. So. Uh, Sounds like these people had a had a like I say it all depends on the writing, yeah. And um, if they had fifty five minute long story and punched it through, I guess it's a it's a Shutter original. Yeah. Ah. Well, I did see recently because I picked up the uh, I try let's call it in trade. I picked up a a Shutter original film on DVD uh, out of McKay, and because I was like, oh wait a minute, I heard people talk about this. Let me check this movie out. And I would have to say. Uh, Twas not impressed with this particular film. It's called The Barge People. It's I have a, not seen that one. 
British horror movie, uh, recent of recent vintage. I can't remember what year exactly. Um, seemed like they had they had a pretty good idea, and they had a they definitely have an interesting setting. Taking a weekend, uh, going down uh, these canals there in the UK, uh, and uh, basically it just plays out as a not particularly great cross between kind of. Not not quite Last House on the Left. That's not really right, and a and a and a gooey monster movie along the lines of you know slime people or something like that. Although not nearly as bad as slime. Well, slime. I don't know. Maybe I would rewatch the slime people before I rewatch the barge. The barge, <laughs> <laughs> the barge people are just. Eh. But I mean, I was watching it with uh, I was watching it with our buddy John, and, and and the best we could come up with is like you know there needs to be a, there needs to be a sequel called Barge Billies versus uh, was it Barge Billies versus Canal Critters or <laughs> and an Aztec mommy <laughs> yeah who the who the hell knows but it was just eh, it just it didn't work it's it, uh, it was, it's another one of those instances where the the screenwriter the screenwriting didn't have enough sense to know that. Okay, so you're introducing four characters at the beginning, and you want us you want to let us know that one of them is a uh, a narcissistic prick. Okay, hit that narcissistic prick button one or two times, and we're good. Don't hit it six times. Yeah. What on the fifth time? We've now gotten it, and we're starting to get irritated that you're wasting screen time making sure that we know that this character is a prick. We already want him dead. It's not a problem. Stop doing this. But um, eh, it's it's just not. It's not particularly effective. And hey, it was made in Britain, so it had to be good, right? No. That's right. They're smarter than we are. <laughs> They're smarter than we are. You can tell from the accents. That's right. They're highfalutin. <laughs> they still have royalty. <laughs> For some fucked up reason. In the 21st fucking century. Uh, Jetpacks and royalty. Somehow they don't go together. I don't know why. The world's the world's on its ass. <laughs> the world's on its ass. Well, tonight, folks. Uh, a few weeks ago, I asked Mr. Hudson here uh, to pick a film, pick a horror film. That's the only thing I said. Pick a horror film, and we will talk about it. Uh, my original goal was to get this out during uh, during the month of October, but as you can tell, I have already failed. Ah, sorry. You failed, haven't you? I have failed. It's true. So it's, it's, my, it's my John Lennon and help. You failed, haven't you, scientist? <laughs> So well, he picked uh, what would be considered uh, a, a fairly famous in certain circles. I know that's for sure. Yeah. A TV movie from 1972 called Gargoyles. Uh, I've only seen this movie like three times in my life, and that's because I, I never I never caught this uh, on television in my younger days. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until uh, it wasn't until it came out on video that I caught up with Gargoyles, and uh, I have to say I was I jumped right in because I remember really enjoying this movie. And uh, I'm glad we've covered this, but uh, I'll tell you what we'll do. Take a quick break. We'll come back and we're going to dive into a discussion of the 1972 TV movie, Gargoyles. Aren't TV movies fun? You see all these familiar faces, but doing really unfamiliar things. And I think that that's really exciting. And I think that's something important to the history of film in general. Join Amanda. There's a lot going on in that scene that is unspoken between two men. So I'm just telling you, I think there was a little Brokeback Mountain <laughs> Dan. I think Therese is a little bipolar. Her voice, it goes from this sort of s- sexy, sensuous voice to, Okay, Ramsey, get out of here. And Nate. I love, you know, in like the late 70s, early 80s, the crazier a person got, the bigger their hair got. 
<laughs> as they discuss their favorite made-for-TV movies. Mr. Hazelrick. On the made-for-TV mayhem show. This man came to see him. He never comes to see him at work. What kind of stories could he have to tell him? <laughs> Tales of his postal delivery. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster vs. monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. In this year, with man's thoughts turned toward the many ills he has brought upon himself, man has forgotten his most ancient adversary, the gargoyles. Gargoyles, 1972, actually premiered November 21st, 1972, so maybe releasing this in November is a good idea. I think so. Could be, could be. Anyway, um, let's talk about the cast first. There's a father, uh, in, in the in the story, there's a father and daughter team, uh, Dr. Mercer Bowley and Diane Bowley. Uh, the father is played by Cornell Wilde, the daughter played by Jennifer Salt. Now, Cornell Wilde, if, if you're unaware... Uh, you might take a look at him and go, well, he's an older gentleman who seems to uh, have been somebody who uh, was probably in really good shape in his younger days, and you would be correct. Mm -hmm. Because my memory of Cornell Wilde is uh, catching, um, oh, darn, uh, what's the the Jungle movie where he's mostly naked throughout it? Oh, Naked Prey? Naked Prey, yes. Where it's one of those things where uh, I think he was, he, he is one of those films when he moved into producing his own movies and, mm -hmm. and directing his own movies and stuff like that. And it's just one of those things where it's just like, well, now you're just showing off. I'm going to write, direct, produce, be naked. Like, what's next? Well, that's kind of what I'm hoping to do still, but <laughs> that I you... can't find any backers. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> Cornell Wilde was a, uh, he's an Hungarian-American actor. Uh, his acting career began in, 35, in 1935 uh, on Broadway. 
And uh, the very next year, he started making small, uncredited appearances in films. By the 1940s, he was a contract player with 20th Century Fox. By the mid-40s, he was a major leading man. He was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actor for his performance in uh, the film A Song to Remember from 1945. Also, uh, apparently had quite a voice on him in his younger days and recorded uh, recorded some songs, including um, having a hit from that movie. In the 1950s, he moved into writing, producing, and directing his own films and uh, continued his career as an actor as well as uh, right up into the 70s, quite obviously. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think he was still working to a degree uh, into the 80s. He passed away, I think, from leukemia in 1989. Had a fairly uh, long life and... Uh, yeah. For a fairly prolific career, seemed to have been able to do what he wanted to do past a certain point. Um, I remember uh, running across his uh, some of the movies he made himself. Oh God, the Sword and Sandal movies. Not, not, well, the kind of knights movies. The uh, what, Scarlet Coat, the from nineteen fifty six. Oh, Lancelot and Guinevere, and um, but then he moved into like I say when he when he did the the Naked Prey in nineteen sixty five. Is this guy stripped naked and chased by hunters from an African tribe because they're they a little upset with him because of the behavior of other members of his safari party. And then Beach Red, which is a pretty famous 1967 movie he made. Uh, it's a war movie. And uh, then he did uh, No Blade of Grass, the science fiction film in 1970, which is still considered a massive classic. But I'll be honest, I've still never seen No Blade I, of Grass. I've never seen that either. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, i gotta got to eventually catch up with that. But it's during this period in the early 70s when he eventually made uh, Gargoyles here. Strangely enough, for a man who at that point was well into his 50s, he spent a lot of time with his shirt off. Well, can you blame him? <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> the man, the man's still in pretty good shape. Not too bad. Uh, although I would, I would argue that I don't know that the the director and the schedule of this film gave him the time to actually give what I consider to be one of his better performances. Uh, he 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 goes through it okay. You know, he's fine, but yeah, there are I, scene, there are scenes where you're pretty sure he's he's thinking I'm going to get another shot at this. We're gonna we're gonna do another take of this scene. And I, nope, <laughs> nope, I don't think so. Oh, one shot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I mean, they had to make this thing in 18, 18 days, days yep. which is a little quick. Yeah, pretty amazing what they got in 18 days. Especially considering most of the budget definitely had to go to burning down a structure mm-hmm. and creating the gargoyle costumes themselves. I mean, that's clearly where the money for this yeah. thing went. Playing the daughter is an actress named Jennifer Salt who I remembered primarily from uh, being on most of the seasons of Soap. Of Soap, yeah. Yeah. I remember from there as well. But she's, uh, I mean, she uh, had an early role in Midnight Cowboy in 69. She uh, she was in Sisters, and as soon as I realized she was in Sisters, I remembered her face yeah. from that Brian De, that early Brian De Palma film from 72. But yeah, that she was in actually uh, three of Brian De Palma's early films, The Wedding Party, Hi Mom, and Sisters. And in Gargoyles, there came a point... Beth had never seen this, so we were watching it for the first time a few nights ago. And there came a point while we were watching it where she where she said, "Does this does this girl own a full shirt?" I don't think she does because <laughs> she's walking around in those. It's not a halter top. It's almost as it's almost uh, that that kind of fashion where the idea is to look as much like a bikini top as possible without actually being a bikini top. And now, in fairness, she did have a shirt on for a while, and then it was an overshirt. It was yeah. an overshirt, but then one of the gargoyles ripped it off. <laughs> yes, yes, because we must have maximum skin for a 1972 That's TV right. movie. <laughs> we need to see a hint of ankle. <laughs> 
Well, well in this case, we're getting like we're getting bare midriff. Yeah, yeah. And shoulders. No, no belly button. And the shoulders. And oh, oh <laughs> the shoulders, my friend. Ankles and shoulders. Yowza. <laughs> I need to go get a shower. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Jeez. Well, uh, the thing about this is that she she's one of those actresses who. Seemed to, as I looked back at it, I was thinking, oh, well, I wonder what she, you know, I know she, her career kind of stopped at a certain point. And uh, her acting career did stop at a certain point. But the most shocking thing to learn was that she did not leave the industry. She has become a producer and a writer of uh, film and television. She was acting, she was in uh, lots of TV series doing episodic television all the way through the uh, the 80s. We're talking uh, Magnum P.I., uh, family Ties, Murder, She Wrote, Empty Nest, you know, basically exactly what you'd think. Yeah. But at a certain point, she turned her hand to screenwriting, and uh, by the late 90s, she was writing pretty regularly, and these days, uh, she's she's known for having written 19 episodes of the TV series Nip Tuck, nine episodes of American Horror Story, which she's also an executive producer of, and, I mean, she's still writing today. She's written two episodes of that new series, Ratchet, which is just it just debuted on mm-hmm. Netflix, what, a month ago. Yeah, and I haven't seen it yet because there's only so much time in the day, but I'm here and it's really good. It's one of those things where you're going, oh, okay, okay, okay. She decided to stop acting and just concentrate on writing and producing mm-hmm. and is obviously doing just fine. Doing just fine. Don't. Don't feel sorry for Jennifer Salt. She's <laughs> no, all right. No, not at all. That, that that cute little girl who's being menaced by these horrible gargoyle creatures uh, is now writing horror stuff. I bet she's bought a shirt since then, too. <laughs> probably. Pro- probably one that, that covers her midriff. Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> we can only wonder. Because there's no... I, don't, I, couldn't, I didn't even go looking for a picture of her these days to make sure she's wearing a shirt. If she's just walking around in a halter top or a bra or something, something. I mean, maybe it's obviously just a choice she made long ago and it's sticking with. It worked then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, before we get into a long discussion, and I want to hold off talking about Bernie Casey until we start talking about the gargoyles themselves, I just want you to know that I'm I'm revved up and raring to go. Because, I mean, I just want you, I want to warn you, I got a pocket full of magic and a pair of non-flappable wings, and I am ready to party. (laughs) And I thought you were just glad to see me. You're reading those wings wrong. <laughs> oh. Well, um, for those of you who... Not in here. <laughs> for those of you who haven't seen Gargoyles, I suggest running off to see it because it is easy to find on YouTube. And in various states of uh, watchability, we had to hunt around to find one that looked better than others. We should make note of the fact that one of the things that gets brought up almost immediately when you start talking about this movie is that it won uh, an Emmy... For uh, make for the makeup work in it for this for uh, the team that uh, created the gargoyle outfits the, the makeup and, and, uh, and costuming and uh, it was it was the first film credit for a very young special effects artist at the time by the name of Stan Winston you may have heard of him considering he went on to do adventures of a known name Norm <laughs> <laughs> yes and some movie what was it let me uh, Terminator. Terminator and Aliens. Aliens. These are things from the 80s that I'm not familiar with. And Pumpkinhead. My, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. My dad would, would have my hide if I didn't mention Pumpkinhead. <laughs> pumpkin <laughs> well, he directed, no, he directed that one. Pumpkinhead. Pumpkinhead. <laughs> oh, Pumpkin. <laughs> now, I think that his, his effects team actually uh, did the effects for 
the, the, the two sequels to it as well. I think they made the monster suits. Oh, really? Yeah, I believe so. I don't know that he was... I don't think he was involved personally, but I do believe it's still his effects team that was doing the uh, that was doing the uh, the monster stuff on the sequels. Um, but Stan Winston, needless to say, if you've watched if you've ever watched any kind of horror or science fiction film from the eighties or nineties, you have seen Stan Winston's work, including Jurassic Park, for mm-hmm. God's sake, and especially that scene where the. Uh Lawyers in the uh, in the outhouse. That's the best scene in Jurassic Park, isn't it, Rock? <laughs> yes, that's the scene that still makes me vomit every time I've, I'm reminded of it. I God, folks, if I've not gone through this before, I am not the world's biggest fan of the first Jurassic Park film because it has what I refer to as Spielbergitis, which is the inability to not tell stupid jokes because you think it helps the film instead of hurting the film. And in my opinion, at least once in most Spielberg films from the 80s and 90s, you get this moment where you're just like, Steven, Steven, stick to the fucking script, you asshole. Stop, 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 stop. We were just, we just had like seven cool moments in a row and you decided you needed to uh, tell a lawyer joke. Let's put him on the toilet and then have the dinosaur grab him. You see that, folks, Uh, how I wound him up? (laughs) Yes, yes. Not ranting at all. Not <laughs> unhappy with the state of fucking up one of the most perfect fucking dinosaur effects of all time by turning it into a goddamn outhouse joke. No, no, not at all. Anyway, we'll move on now until Mr. Hudson finds another way to push my fucking buttons. No, we'll go on now. There, and we'll try to remain to come, friends. Sure. We'll try to remain friends. It's, it's completely possible to remain friends with you. I'm sure of it. I am sure of it. So anyway, Stan Winston. <laughs> He's pretty good. I, I have to admit, uh, I, I was finding a, some funny... Some, you know, anytime you do a special effects on a movie, there's all these these chances to have funny uh, photographs taken on set while you're, you know, you're, 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 people are getting into makeup or things like this. And I have to admit, one of the, one of the more amusing ones is from uh, The Terminator with uh, Schwarzenegger hamming it up by uh, posing with his, you know, the fake head that they made of him, so they can, so that the, they can dig the eye mm-hmm. out, uh, in that in that one particular scene, and it's him clowning around with that with Stan Winston, uh, right beside him holding the head, <laughs> and it's just it's one of those moments where you just it's like probably a sixteen hour day. <laughs> we're gonna have to find a way to have some fun here. Let's make fun of the fact that you're gonna that we're, that we're gonna poke your own eye out, right? So why not? Uh, well. When did you first see Gargoyles? Because, like I said, I didn't come to it until video. You know, years after its initial introduction on television in '72. Well, luckily, well, I don't know if it's lucky or not, but I'm I'm a little older than you. How old are you, Rod? I was born in '68, so I'm and, 52. And I was 65, so it's just okay. en- old enough that I saw this when it was first run. Okay. I am um, when I was a kid, anything on TV that. They used to call them melodramas. Would be the old movies. You could, I would go through the TV guide, and of course, oh, it's a melodrama. Goes to Frankenstein, you know. But um, anything with monsters or horror or science fiction, I was going to watch. So I watched all the TV movies at the time as they were broadcast, and watched Gargoyles as it was as it first ran. And man, did my little heart love this thing! Did it freak you out? I'm curious. No, it didn't. Um, but I've always been a pretty tough scare. Okay. Because um, even when I was little, I mean, I knew these were guys in suits, and they didn't yeah. really scare me. But 
my little sister, who would have been, I would have been six when it was on. My little sister would have been four. And she watched it with me. And I'm sure hasn't seen it since. <laughs> well, but it's, not her, it's not her thing. So. No, no. And, it, you know, it's not like it's running all the time on the USA Network or anything. <laughs> no. But um, I mentioned to her the other day that I was going to do a podcast about gargoyles. And she said, I remember that was your favorite movie. I still remember those those guys that just freaked me out. Watched them hang around in that cave. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is a fine description of a certain <laughs> section of this movie. Yeah. Watching so, guys in gargoyle costumes hang out in a cave, yes. So years, you know, many years on, you know, she still remembers it. And it, so it definitely made an impression on her. It scared her to death, but it, it didn't scare I just thought it was cool. Yeah. I, like I said, I, I kind of wish I had seen it sometime in the 70s because it was, it was rerun periodically. Mm-hmm. I just somehow never caught up with it. And I'm not really sure why because I have memories of seeing like, uh, you know, an ad on television saying that it was going to be shown or something like that, you know, kind of coming soon kind of thing, things of that nature. But I never did catch up with it. I never went out of my way to do it. And it's, I think back to how long certain television movies like The Night Stalker and The Night Strangler have stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And they came along a couple of years later. And how they stuck with me so much to the point where they're kind of, a, in a lot of ways, uh, a basic building block of how I look at a horror movie and how I, I enjoy them, how I enjoy the structure of them. Um, there's so much built into the way those kinds of movies were made that just kind of resonate with me all the way down the line, it, it, even to today. And I wonder if I had watched Gargoyles at that young an age, if it, if it had if it would have been able to do something similar to me. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, once you're an adult and watch something like this, you can appreciate it, you can enjoy it, but it's never going to have that kind of impact on you that it would have had if you were, like, under the age of 10 and oh, catching yeah. it for the first time. Because I just I thought this thing was great. I can remember drawing pictures of the... I love the gargoyle skeletons. I remember drawing oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. little six-year-old versions. That, and, well, I wish I still had those things. <laughs> <laughs> but I just... And anything when I was little... The more monstery the monster, you know, like Dracula wasn't a favorite because he just it was a guy. He's like a guy, yeah. But you know, Godzilla. Now that's a monster, you know. Yep. So the more monstery it was, the better for me. And of course, this thing is very monstery. They're they're, I, and, and I, I like the variations in color and how there seems to be an obvious difference between the males and the females. Yeah, and everyone is different. There's None of them are the same. Which is exactly not what you would have expected from a relatively low-budget, mm-hmm. early-70s TV monster movie. You would expect them to find a way to like streamline the design so that everybody looks the same because that would be the easiest to mass-produce. It's like, we got to produce X number of these things, mm-hmm. and we need, you know, we can justify them all looking alike because they're quote-unquote, the same species or whatever they are. And they're, uh, the the fact that they didn't go that route, that they there was so much differentiation between them, is fantastic. And I will say that, unfortunately, coming to it as an adult, what I found wonderful about that isn't reflected in the screenplay, which I, I really wish there had been another pass at the screenplay because I wish there had been personality, different personalities built into these characters, these gargoyle mm-hmm. characters. In other words, I wish as much thought had been put into creating some kind of characteristics with these guys so that you didn't necessarily need for them to look completely different, 
but there would also be actions and maybe even uh, dialogue from them that would give you some kind of idea of the differences between them, maybe even uh, just personality traits of some type. But I think that uh, they may have decided to kind of lean on the visuals to, to give you an idea of there being a lot of different you know, a lot of different ones and a lot of different looks to them, kind of providing the quote-unquote personality for mm-hmm. it. And there are some bits where they you can see sort of the gargoyle society yeah. later on, which we'll get to in a bit. But yeah. so, but there, there were some, you know, attempts at that. But I, I totally see what you're saying. I think if, the, if it had been maybe another 15 minutes longer, too, they'd have had more time to do that. Yeah, and I... Probably if they had like another week to shoot, yeah. they could have spent a little bit more time. Yeah, maybe just a day or two at least. <laughs> Something like that. Because there, there is a, I hate to say it, I mean, don't get me wrong, I like the movie, but there is a rushed quality to it when you kind of stand back and start looking at how things are being shot and how things are playing out in uh, spe- you know specific ways uh, where you're looking at it going, like, like I said earlier, where I'm pretty sure there were, there were, there were moments when at least one of the actors thought, oh, we're going to have to do this again, aren't we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to do another take on this. And it's like, no, I don't think they did another take. I think they got, they, they like took two shots at it, went with the best of those two and moved on. Well, it was directed by a guy named Bill Norton, who was apparently not the first choice. Uh, he came along and, and for the, whoever they wanted to direct this film initially bowed out because he couldn't see how he'd be able to do it in 18 days. But Bill Norton stepped in to do it. And it was really only his second, his second time in the director's chair and I think he did a pretty good job, all things considered. In the commentary track, he mentions that this was the most difficult shoot of his entire career um, because of just the rush nature of it. And also they were out in the desert um, and it was hot, really hot. But he mentions very quickly the name of the director. Oh, did? But I don't know if it's right. It was either Joe Taylor or Judd Taylor, but I did a little bit of research and couldn't come up with anything. And it may not be right because he also mentions that um, Stan Winston and Rick Baker did the Gargoyles. So Rick his, Baker wasn't involved. Right. Yeah. So his memory may not be 100% accurate. So when I got to that point in the commentary, I thought, well, I'm not going to dig too much more into the Taylor. Yeah. If, but so I never could quite figure out who the original director was going to be. Well, he went on to, he directed the, the sequel to American Graffiti. And then uh, there's a big gap there in his directorial career. Then he did uh, Baby, The Secret of the Lost Legend, that dinosaur movie mm-hmm. from the early 80s for Disney. And then a lot of television. Some episodes of the revamped Twilight Zone. Uh, did, uh, I think, an episode of Buffy. Some Angel. Angel, uh, Sequest 2032. A lot of TV movies with titles like Deadly Whispers and Gone in the Night and Our Mother's Murder. Wow, I wonder if Meredith Baxter Burney or Susan Day is in any of those. Um, odds are 100%. <laughs> Gregory Harrison shows up and steals her heart. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, yeah, you're right. He did do, uh, he did, he did a Buffy, he did some, he did several episodes of Angel. He was directing a lot of television up until about 2009, I think. He has retired from this kind of thing since then, but... Not completely sure. When did he record that commentary track? That was for the DVD. It was from the DVD. It? So uh, probably early 2000s? I think so, yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, uh, did, uh, at any point, did, did, did uh, was it weak moderator? Did he make any comment about the choice to do slow motion for the, for the gargoyle movements? He really didn't go into it much. The commentary, honestly, I was hoping to get some real good nuggets in there. Yeah. And he just said, oh, that looks kind of cool to give him another worldly thing to do the slow motion, which... 
I could have told him that, you know. So Well, yeah, but it's like, I, here's the thing. I also wonder if at the time, because here's the thing, just a few years after Gargoyles, that uh, that kind of uh, herky-jerky slow motion image, because it's not really slow motion. It's, there's a, there's it's a, probably a frame skip. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a skip frame kind of thing. Uh, it's it's very similar to what they were using in the TV show of the Hulk, the Incredible mm-hmm. Hulk, just a few years later. Whenever the Hulk was on screen doing you know feats of incredible strength, and uh, I don't know if uh, it was something that would uh, would have cropped up into television sooner or later either, because I really don't think television was using slow motion at all until the seventies, and I don't know if Gargoyles was the first instance of it, and probably not. Who the heck knows? But I think it's interesting that the only areas in which, like, like I say, I can the only things I can remember that definitely have it are this and the Incredible Hulk, and in both instances, it's it's being used as kind of a, a bizarre, otherworldly effect mm-hmm. uh, on a budget, essentially. Whereas to me, uh, the the effectiveness of slow motion in movies like The Wild Bunch was not to 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 underline some kind of bizarre thing; it was to show you something incredibly important and intense detail you know it was it was to draw your attention to the violence of something rather than provide some kind of you know weird effect for a supernatural creature so interesting choice and uh, I I don't know I I would I would like to know what the genesis of that if it was his idea or if it was an idea that was built into the into the project from the jump from jump street because one of the weirder things about it and it's hard to not notice this is that the only time they use the the kind of weird slow-mo effect is when only the gargoyles are on screen. Because if there's any human whatsoever in the image, then it's just regular speed. Yeah, and it will look silly for the humans to be. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, except for, uh, wait a minute, the, the scene where uh, Jennifer Salt's character has been passed out and they're carrying her away in the desert, I can't remember if that was... It is, but she's not moving. Yeah, yeah, she's unconscious. She's so. cargo at that point. <laughs> so her consciousness cannot affect... The way in which the camera shoots the image. Right. <laughs> okay, now we're just getting silly. Yeah. And I blame you. Uh, me? I blame you. I'm deadly serious. <laughs> Remember what the uh, well the Indian word was for the devils in the legends? Let me see. Not Nakatechikos. That's it. This great chief saw the Nakatechiko in the desert, and he had the tribe make costumes for all the elders, like the Nakatechiko, for the uh, ritual of manhood called Nonataya. Nonataya. Uh, what about, uh, can you recall the ritual itself? Uh, let me think. Uh, Just a minute. Uh, I, I, uh, the, uh, ritual, ritual. All the young men dressed for battle gathered around the Nakatekachinko and... Let's take a quick run through the plot. Uh, 
feel free to stop me at any point if you've got uh, some uh, some uh, point of interest that you'd like to make. And uh, we will keep going through this until we... Uh, I, I feel safe spoiling this. I'm not that worried. Yeah. Because it's a 74-minute long movie from almost 50 years ago, 48 years ago. So I think that we're okay talking about this. Yeah, I don't feel sorry for you at this point if we're going to spoil it. You know, it's on YouTube. Go watch it. Yeah. Yeah, watch it watch it now and then come back. It won't take you long and you'll be glad you did. Watch it now and thank me later. That's right. <laughs> well, okay. So Dr. Mercer Boyle, I'm sorry, not Boyle. Dr. Mercer Boley and his daughter Diana are traveling in New Mexico. Oh, and I'm going to stop you there. What? Before we even get to the plot. Oh, you love that opening? Uh, the opening. Well, that's how this podcast is, is opening, so they will have heard that. They already. will have heard it. Okay, yes. the voice of Vic Perrin. Yep. From the, uh, the Outer Limits. Voice of the Outer Limits. And there's one thing I don't like is in that opening, which you can't see. His, his voiceover is great. Oh, yeah. I, I love, love that. I don't like the shots from the movie. Yeah, of the uh, the, the gargoyle babies. Yeah, and yeah. like the, the lead gargoyle kind of tossed in with all the myth, mythological yeah. you know, thing and the yeah. statues. I think I that, wish they needed to save that. You're right. That, that would have been better for a reveal later. Um, but hearing Vic Perrin's voice right off the bat is like, ah, I'm in good hands. <laughs> and I love this mythology. The, the film kind of builds itself. From the opening seconds, with that, with that, it's almost like an opening scroll at the beginning of a of a of a fantasy movie to set up the mythology you need to know, and that's exactly what this is because it's like <clears throat> we must now convince you that the bullshit we're about to show you has some basis in reality. Of course, it doesn't, but still, I want you to play along and pretend that we're not just shooting shit. Out of tube. Here we go. And and, and I like that. I think that's fun. I think that there was a point in time where people started to feel like doing that kind of thing in a movie was silly or overdoing some aspect of storytelling or, or, you know, telling rather than showing maybe, which I can understand the logic of thinking that. But at the same time, it's there's something about those kind of opening scrawls where you either got just a text crawl that you've got to read mm-hmm. or someone has the text crawl and you're you're being you know it's being read to you as well. That that narration, that's 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 gold. To me, that that kind of almost sets up a story as being a kind of uh, once upon a time fairy tale situation where right. it's like, hey, let's set the mood here, give you an idea of where you're going. And you're right, Vic Perrin's voice is perfect for this. And uh, it, it it does kind of give you that that first step, kind of confidence step into this film to give you an idea of hey you know we're we're building something here there's a there's a mythology here we're going to give you this backstory where these things crop up every seven hundred years and 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 they 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 uh, attempt to to kill humans every seven hundred years or whatever they whatever it is that you want to build into this storyline and that's pretty cool and it also gives you you know. It's, it's smart writing to a degree because it gives you that out of going, well, I haven't seen these damn things before. It's like, because they haven't been around for 700 years, you That's dumbass. Right. But they've been here before. Yes, over and over again. Well, Dr. Mercer Boley and his daughter Diana are traveling in New Mexico uh, doing uh, scientific research for his next book. They are shown by this uh, this old coot out in the desert who runs a... Uh, who runs a I guess what you'd call one of those roadside attraction things. Mm-hmm. And I love how they're going along. It's like, see the snake den. And yep. See the... 
the um, oh, I don't even remember. Yeah, the, the desert fish. <laughs> yeah, all this, all these different things. We're just like, okay, so this is the kind of stuff that you would see in a, in one of those mm-hmm. silly little convenience stores slash desert museums beside the road. That, and and this is one thing where it, the one thing I don't know if it's on YouTube, but the DVD that I had it, it seemed like there was an edit there because I could have swore that when I was a kid it said you won't see the invisible chimp. <laughs> Uh-huh. Wondered when you were going to try to get that in. I want, you to, I want you to look behind you at the man with the machete because he's been waiting. You're not, you, fuck you. Fuck you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an edit in there. Edit your it looked like a rough splice. Scalp is what I'm going to It's just a real quick jump cut. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Because, you know. It's always there, right? I think so. I think George Lucas got a hold of this thing. <laughs> we got a <coughs> got a special edition of it. Yeah. Well, we should point out actually that the seventy-four minute version of it is kind of a special edition of the film. It's not the version of it's not the same version of the film that was broadcast in seventy-two. The seventy-four minute version is about two minutes longer, and it's the version of the film that, believe it or not, folks, got released in Europe as a feature film. So uh, there's about two minutes of extra footage in this version of it. Uh, and I'd say, not having seen the 72-minute the long version, I'd say stick with the 74-minute long version because, to be honest, as we've already said, I kind of wish it was longer to begin with mm-hmm. just to give us some more backstory and, and depth to some of the characters and personalities. But Yeah, there's only a couple places where I could even see where maybe a minute could have been trimmed out here or there, and I'll mention one of them in a bit. Okay. But, yeah, there's not much fat on this thing. Not at all. Not at all. Well... Uh, they're shown this skeleton of a large creature with wings and horns. Which looks awesome. Yeah, it does. It really does. It, it really looks does. very I, cool. I, I suspect that that was definitely one of those things that the Stan Winston uh, crew, the crew that Stan Winston was working with, mm-hmm. were involved with. And it's one of the things that's one of those first images in the in the movie where you're like, oh, okay, this is kind of probably going to be something a little special here. They're not going to be playing around here. This is something where they've spent spent a little bit of money on putting something together that looks good. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely the first first time. I also love, also love this character. He don't last long in this movie. But it's Uncle Willie. And it's Uncle Willie's Desert Museum. I'm not sure that even in the 70s, I would have been in favor of stopping at a roadside attraction called Uncle Willie's Desert Museum. I'm pretty sure that's where horror movies start, and it certainly happens here. <laughs> True. Uncle Willie is the guy who says, don't go down that shortcut. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's the crazy Ralph character, only in this case, he's the crazy Ralph character who's trying to lure you to mm-hmm. death instead of warn you away from it. It's very strange. Nevertheless, Dr. Bowley dismisses all this and the skeleton as a hoax assembled from a bunch of unrelated bones, but Uncle Willie insists that he found the bones together as a whole skeleton. But Uncle Willie insists that he found the bones while Uncle Willie tells them tales of demons from uh, Native American folklore. He he rattles off some interesting names of things during Mm -hmm. that that period of time, and he he sticks to those names. I'm I'm not saying that he fucks them up, but it's pretty interesting. But while he's telling them all this stuff, and they're they're recording it, they've got a little tape recorder going, an unseen force attacks the building they're in, causing a rafter to collapse and fall right on the head of Uncle Willie. And that was a nice stunt, too. Yeah, because it really looked like it hit yeah. in the head and it looked like the real rafter killed a guy. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, shit. But, of course, all of this activity uh, ends up starting a fire in the building and it burns the whole damn thing down. Uh, Dr. Bowley and Diana escape with... I love the fact that Cornell Wilde is Dr. Bowley. 
he does. He's able to grab the skull. That's the only thing mm-hmm. in the the whole skeleton. He's able to grab. <laughs> he's like grabbing that that horned skull of the, the fuck out of, the, of the hoax. And it's like, where what? It makes me wonder. And that's one of the neater things about this. That like I say, if it were just a little bit longer, and we'd spend a little more time getting some more shots of Cornell Wilde. There's that. What that means to me is there came a point when this guy is telling them their story, telling his story to them, and they're recording it, where he started to maybe think that he wasn't full of shit. Yeah, like maybe he heard some details that matched yeah. up with stuff that he knew to yeah. be true. And see, that's one of the first moments in the movie looking at it from a 21st century perspective as an adult where I'm thinking if they had a little bit more time to get like a few insert shots of Cornell Wilde mm-hmm. to splice into him, to this to Uncle Willie telling the story, where you start to see the look on his face change from, yeah, you know, from kind of, you know, disbelief to curiosity and uh, having those looks keyed to certain details in the story, that would have built more of a, a, a logical reason for him to you know, risk getting burned himself to grab that skull. But small, small, small problem. Well, they, uh, they get out of there in their vehicle, and are, as they're driving down the, the road away from this, this exploding, burning building, uh, they're attacked by the gargoyles who were shaking the shit out of the building. And I have to say, the the attack on the for 1972 for a TV movie, this attack on the car is pretty damn good. Yeah, it is. The there's the one that lands on the roof, it starts clawing its way through the roof of the car, and uh, and I think that's the only one. Is there only one scene. that's attacking the car? Because I, I got the sense the certain there might have been two, but maybe there was. Only I think there's just the one because you see him slow motionly going off into the woods after he gets thrown <laughs> off. Slow motionly, I like that. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to put it. But yeah, it's a good scene, and it was shot um, in the commentary, and you can kind of tell it's the poor man's process, yeah, where yeah. it's just starting, they're shaking the car, but it works. You see the gargoyle come up behind and oh, yeah. jump up. It's it sort of reminiscent of the uh, opening from Halloween, where the Michael Myers jumps up on the car, and you even see the hand come down and yeah, smacks smack the glass. The dry, yeah, and, th- and that's effective, because you're not getting a full-on, quick, good look at the, the uh, outfit, the, the costume, but you're getting glimpses of it. As this scene goes on, and uh, I think one of the most effective is when you see that hand, mm-hmm. and then when it leers at Jennifer Salt through the the window is the first time you really get a good look at the face. And I think that another reason that that is pretty smart filmmaking is whether they meant to or not, <clears throat> what it does is set you up to think that ah they're all going to look this way, and so when others of them show up, in you know in subsequent sequences and they look a little bit different. That's another point of interest to kind of keep you, you know, kind mm-hmm. of leaning into the story, leaning into the to the to the screen to see what's going to look, see what we're going to see next. So that's that's pretty cool. Well, the next morning, uh, they report to the police and return to the side of the fire. Now, now see, I got to keep stopping you because you that's keep our... missing important stuff. Ah, uh, shit! What you didn't mention at all, Mrs. Parks, the lady, oh, who yes. runs... <laughs> the woman who runs the motel. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know, here's here's the funny thing. Earlier, I mentioned the uh, tales from the hood to you know, kind of hitting the 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 racist scumbag button a little too many, a few too many times per character because it's like we got it, we got it, we got it. Okay, we got it again. We got it. We got to get it. If there was a scene this woman was in where she didn't have a glass of alcohol in her hand. Then I missed it. Completely. Yeah, no, I don't think there was one. <laughs> Even 
later on when she like goes to the cop, the cops. Yeah, she knows which drawer the whiskey is she in. She pulls the dude's whiskey bottle out of the sheriff's drawer and fills the glass that she brought with her. Yes, like she, you know, that was her walking drink, and she walks <laughs> over and she's done with that, and she needs now a, a talking to the cops drink. That's what that is. It's amazing. Yeah. This is a woman that she's got a certain, there's a certain percentage of her blood that needs to be alcohol or she can't function, clearly. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I, I'd forgotten you about that. You can't forget that. That's, that's the stuff. <laughs> Was it, I love the way she uh, not so subtly hints at, uh, at Cornell Wilde that, uh, hey, you want some rumpy puppy? But yeah, she after you put tuck your daughter in, why don't you come back over and I'll take these curvers out of my hair. And <laughs> Well, I, I love that she was already fishing yeah, already curvers fishing out of her so she could look better. Yeah, what, what, that Brillo hair on her head. This is this, this not going to encourage anybody to get, you know, why don't I go catch syphilis? Why not? What the fuck? She was great. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, the next morning they report to the police and return to the side of the fire. There they find a group of young men who are uh, dirt bike riders, you know, which you run across out in the desert. That's where mm-hmm. we want where we want to keep them away from normal people. That's just the way it is. But uh, the police, seeing these guys running you know, running around the burnt ruins of Uncle Willie's place, decide that what happened the night before was these guys fucking with these people, and they go to arrest them immediately. And this was this is about the only place in the movie where I could see the the chase where they're chasing down the guys on the bikes. Yeah, they could have cut about a minute of that out. Yeah, it's a little excessive. And it's not very effectively shot either. No, and that's when when you were talking about how there's two minutes added, I thought that might have even been it. You know, just I don't know. I didn't I didn't look up to find out what the uh what the added footage was or what why they felt that they needed mm-hmm. to add two minutes of footage. I don't know. But And it's not terrible, but it's you know, it's like okay, it's police chasing some guys on some dirt bikes. All right, they're still chasing them and <laughs> Yeah. We're not far away from uh, the period of time in the 70s, you know, Smokey and the Bandit and Eat My <laughs> Dust and all those things where it was just like, does every director want to film cars zooming down desert highways mm-hmm. and over over bumpy, uh, you know, sand-filled ditches just for the sheer fuck of it? Is that what the 70s were all about for some people? And it's like, eh, probably it may have been. Yeah, it was. Yeah, well, well, well. I love the fact that uh, Jennifer Salt's character, the daughter character, she immediately is like, "Look, it it couldn't have, it wasn't them." Yeah, which I thought, and I thought that was actually that was great. Yeah, and that actually that helped out because you know one of the dirt bike riders played by Scott Scott Glenn, Glenn. yeah, and what a very early role for him. Very early, it looked like he's about twelve. I know he's but so you can, young. That so I think buys a lot of loyalty from him later on to yeah. her because not only does she speak up for him there, but then later on she comes to you. You got the wrong guys. They didn't do it. Yeah, and even goes over and says, "I'm going to do everything I can to get you out of here. I know you didn't do it." Yeah, and as soon as they have something tangible, which is a, one of the, a dead gargoyle later on, mm-hmm. she as soon as they have that, she didn't even say anything to her father. She just walks down the street to the cop yeah. shop and goes, "Okay, look, I can show you that it wasn't them." And the cops and the, and the, the sheriff's not around. They're like, "Look, they they've already we've had, we've pressed charges. Mm-hmm. Nothing we can do now until the judge." Arranges them. We can't. It's that that that's that steps over. And she's that way even from after the they're going back to the hotel and she's telling her, I can't believe you let the sheriff arrest those guys. And Cornell Walker, of course, I couldn't stop them. You know. Yeah, I mean, and, he, and to a degree, he's correct. I yeah. Mean, he, what was I going to say? It wasn't him. That was I going to make finger. the cops think that we were insane by yeah. telling them no, no, it couldn't have been them. It was gargoyles. Yeah. Guess what? They're still going to arrest those guys, and then mm-hmm. they're going to think we're nuts. 
But I thought that was a nice touch that she instantly stuck to that. And yeah. So, you know, that, that was a good moment. Well, that night, two gargoyles uh, appearing much smaller than the skeleton. And that's something else I like about this is that the, there's a lot of variation, not mm-hmm. just in the way they look, but in the sizes and the body types. But these are smaller than the skeleton. And without the horns or wings, they invade the motel room to retrieve the skull. And one of them went to the bathroom. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> what do you remember that Cornell Wilde, like... Yes. Oh, that's right. He opens the bathroom. Yes. And while I was prowling around, like, looking in the medicine cabinet. Yeah, I know. He's like, you got any aspirin in here? <laughs> I got a terrible horn ache. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> well, <laughs> Dr. Bowley chases them to the road where one of them is struck by a passing truck and killed. And the other one gets away with the skull. Now, Bowley takes that body back into the motel room and stretches it out. And this is the point where I'm thinking, boy, you, you're really not going to get a room deposit back on this place. <laughs> you're screwed on this one. And Mrs. Park shows up to complain. Of course. Rightfully so. I mean, it was quite the commotion yep, in her yep, hotel. Yep. And Diana tries to assure that it was only a family argument, which I like. It's like a family argument with gargoyles. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so she she gets Miss Parks to go away. Um, there, what was weird is there was never any word from the truck driver who stopped but seems to have driven away without suspicion. And there's nothing, there's no, like no further mention is made of the bathroom door that was destroyed by the gargoyle. Did you notice that? Because they come through and they like bust the shit out of that door. Mm-hmm. But, because uh, just, I just wonder about the truck driver. He's like, ah, yeah. either I hit a gargoyle or an armadillo or I shouldn't have had those seven beers. This is one of the yeah, This keeps happening to me. <laughs> it's the third gargoyle I've run over this month. Just came through Texas and ran over that hitchhiker guy next to that fellow with the chainsaw. Now I'm hitting a gargoyle. <laughs> what the fuck is next? <laughs> I hope Dennis Weaver doesn't try to pass me. Because <laughs> I'm going to get pissed. <laughs> That'll be all I can stand. <laughs> oh my God. It's TV movie hell. <laughs> well, Diana returns to the police station and pleads for the biker's innocence, but the police refuse to release them. Uh, they have their reasons. She tells Rieger, uh, that would be the uh, one of the cops, about the dead gargoyle, but does not... Ma- oh, well, no, 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 that'd be the... No, Rieger uh, was... Rieger's the biker played Scott by Scott Glenn. Glenn. Yeah. Uh, she tells Rieger about the dead gargoyle, but does not mention it to the police, even though it would prove their innocence, apparently because her father wants it for study. She returns to the motel, and I, I love the conversation here between the father and the daughter, where she actually says something that is it's it's exactly what you'd be thinking as a as a as a viewer, which is he's wanting to just hold on to this body, and so the daughter does say what goes through my mind, which is, are you gonna keep your mouth shut about this because this is gonna be really good for your next book? Is this and that having the daughter lay that suspicion out without being too pointed about it, but still getting across a kind of negative attitude mm-hmm. about that idea to her father, and then kind of and that and that's a, that's a moment in the movie where you can see Cornell West, his abilities as an actor, I think, because the way he plays it is there's a slight pause as he absorbs what she says, and it's almost as if. He thinks about it for a second and then goes, no, that's not what this is. As if he had to, as if he kind of had to think about that himself. 
Mm-hmm. He had to question his own motivations for a second. And I kind of like that. And that's one of the few moments in the movie where it's like they they got a little bit of, of nuance in there without it slowing anything down, without it, without it chopping anything up or making it feel like it was kind of uh, something that should have been done but wasn't. And I yeah. like that. And then right after that, it, it sort of happens again where yeah. here, here come the gargles and she says, just give them the body. That's what they want. And he's like, yeah. no, no, we got to get it back to L.A. And at that point, you think, you really are. Want, I mean, you'll risk life and yeah. limb for this thing, even though you know if you just put it outside the door, they'll take it and leave. Yeah. And <laughs> nobody else needs to, to worry about getting harmed. Yeah. At this point, two slightly larger gargoyles return to recover the dead gargoyle. But the, uh, the bullies escape with it through the window and stow it in their station wagon. But they don't get very far. Because the gargoyles rip the passenger door off the car, which is a great scene, and then pull Diana out of the car and then flip the car over on its top. And I remember as a kid, that was one of the scenes that all of us were talking about how cool it was. <laughs> that they flipped the car over. It, yeah, it's, it's a great scene. It's still, yeah. it's still pretty damn great. Yeah, it really is. Well, this knocks uh, the good Dr. Bowley unconscious. And the gargoyles take uh, Diana back to their cave where she meets the gargoyle lizard. Oh, I'm sorry, gargoyle leader. No, he was Not actually lizard. there. He was there. You remember he leaned over. Yeah, but over. This, is, this is where she wakes up. At, oh, she wakes up and, and sees him. Yeah, 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 yeah. He sees her first. Yeah. And seems to enjoy, he seems to really like her halter top. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That that top probably probably selling her species pretty mm-hmm. effectively to, to this gargoyle. Uh, well... Uh, the, the gargoyle leader is larger and has wings and horns like the skeleton that they were shown early mm-hmm. on. He tells Diana that they've only been alive for a few weeks after a 500-year incubation period and that humans have repeatedly killed them off in the past, but he vows that they will survive this time. Now, before we go any further, we should mention that the leader of these gargoyles is played by Bernie Casey. Now, I only knew Bernie Casey... I'm. You know, I grew up in the 1970s and 80s. I knew Bernie Casey as an actor. And it was only years after the fact that I realized that, oh, this guy was in the NFL. This dude was like a superb athlete in the in the late 50s and 60s. And uh, when you look at him, especially his physique, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, of course. Obviously, he was, you know, badass NFL player. He's got everything you need for it. But I always knew him as this really effective, he's got that great voice that we do not get to hear in this movie at all. And the director mentioned that in the commentary, and that was one of the few really interesting things in there, is they didn't think that the voice worked as the gargoyle. Well, I still wonder, I mean, don't get me wrong, I understand. You've already you've already paid Vic Perrin to be in the studio, so why not just have him dub all of this stuff? But at the mm-hmm. same time, it's it's a little, it seems like they could have tried to find a way to work with Bernie Casey's voice if they didn't think it worked as well as they hoped. Yeah, and it sounded almost like they realized it maybe in post even, like, this just doesn't work. But I thought, I thought his voice is fine. Yeah. And, of course, they modulated Vic Perrin. So if you, they'd done that to Bernie Casey, I think that it probably would have I think they would have worked as well. Fun. Well, like I said, I grew up watching Bernie Casey in about a half a dozen different movies. I think the first movie I saw him in where I realized, oh, okay, okay, this guy, I know who this guy is, was uh, Sharky's Machine mm-hmm. in 1981, the Burt Reynolds movie. Which, by the way, is a remake of Laura. So if you've seen Laura, you've probably seen Sharky's Machine. Uh but the, the, the thing about that is is where he really got famous was in another TV movie called Brian's Song. 
mm-hmm. which was like the biggest, most effective tearjerker that TV made during the entire decade. If, if you wanted to cry. Especially if you were a man. That's one that men, it, was, and, it allowed men to cry. That's yeah. right, and you're not embarrassed to say that Brian's song made you cry. Made me cry, man. Now, one thing that Bernie Casey, a movie that he's in that I love, for maybe the wrong reasons, but is Doctor Black and Mister Hyde. Hey, I've covered it here on the podcast. I like that. Film. I love that movie, and it's responsible for one of the greatest lines in film trailer history. <laughs> Don't give him no sass, or he'll kick your ass. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> oh my god, that that's rough. Uh, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, he's one of the actors who played Felix Leiter in a in a James Bond. Film. Yes, in Never Say Never Again with uh, with uh, the uh, the great Sean Connery. But he was in a half a hundred different things. He was in uh, Boxcar Bertha for uh, Martin Scorsese. Uh, Revenge of the Nerds. Revenge of the Nerds. I'm gonna get you, sucker. Uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Uh, one of Walter Hill's less good movies, another 48 hours, unfortunately. Oh, and he returned. He turned up repeatedly in Star Trek shows uh, and Babylon 5. He's on Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5. But like I said, it was I knew him from that kind of stuff. But then to find out, you know, about his his wide receiver mm-hmm. uh, status and kind of legendary Hall of Fame status in the NFL, it's like, oh yeah, well he's six <laughs> four. So it's not a big shock. He's a he's a big guy and he's clearly muscular, but he just always seemed like a really literate man. Someone who I would I always pictured him, uh, you know, sitting somewhere reading a book rather than you know, in in, in a, a helmet bashing the shit out of people. Yeah, so, and 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 he's not. Well, actually, he is literate and reads a book in this movie. Yeah, exactly. I, I say that, but he's really good. Just his physical performance because you yes. can hear his voice, but. As he walks in the, onto the screen the first time, he's just got that presence about him, even under all the gargoyle costume. And, and clearly that's why they chose him to be this character, mm-hmm. because he ha- he is, he's the, ta- you know, he's the tallest guy in the film, and you know they put him in that costume, and I'm sure he's a couple inches taller at the very least, plus the wings make him even look larger. Uh, but there's more than to his performance than just being big. He's got yeah. like a good physical physical acting going on. Well, they did a really good job with the makeup on his face because the the makeup, they had learned, you know, makeup men had learned the the very valuable lessons that were employed on the Planet of the Apes movies, which is by applying the uh, appliances to the face uh, in such a way so that the actor's muscular, natural facial muscular movements interacted with the makeup and moved it in a way that gave the character the the ability to to act through mm-hmm. the makeup instead of it just being a covering, uh, th- th- that's very much an effect here as well because you get a lot of really good facial expressions from him when he's delivering the dialogue. So it's not just being told through the dialogue; it's definitely something you're watching this actor do on screen that's getting across a lot of this. Which is another reason why, like I say, the Vic Perrin voice is fine. It's a little weird for what's going on. It, it's, it, but I really do wish that they found a way for it to be Bernie Casey's voice, even if yeah. they altered it a bit to make it otherworldly. That would have been fine, but it's a it's a, it's a minor point. But I, I, I wish he'd been able to have the chance to give that full rounded. If, if we got the chance to see that full rounded per, uh, performance from him, but and that actually takes me to something else. I was talking about how my little sister, this movie stuck with her up to this day. When I was in high school, one of my best friends was a girl named Beverly. 
And she and I always used to laugh because I don't know how many times she'd seen Gargoyle since it was broadcast, if any. But she would always talk about the lead Gargoyle. And she would always go, <laughs> Diana, <laughs> Diana. <laughs> well, it's a, distinct, it, it's a distinctive, once you hear it, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's, it, it, it's not to be forgotten. What's all this for? There is a great deal we must learn. We have only been alive for a few weeks. We must not let you kill us out. Not this time. What about the others? There are perhaps maybe a dozen of us. We mean no harm. You have nothing to fear. Your people have nothing to fear. But they have never understood. Why do I have to stay here if you mean us no harm? Well, the, uh, the leader Gargoyle has several of Dr. Bully's books that they apparently took from the car when they flipped it over. And you, and, could, you do get to see him, because I thought about yeah. that. I was like, how do they get these books? But you can see him actually carrying them in some papers or getting Yeah, caught. so the papers are kind of coming out of them as yeah. they go through the desert. Yeah. Uh, he insists that Diana read to him. And as she reads a passage that describes a mythical yeah. encounter between a human female and a demon who molests her, the an leader, incubus, yeah. Yeah, an incubus. Maybe not the best passage to read. <laughs> yeah, one wonders what the hell she was reading that passage for, yeah. The leader approaches from behind, the, the leader gargoyle, and uh, startles her, but assures her that he has no interest in humans. And it's like, I'm not all going to share about that. I don't know about this. I think the gargoyle dude might be looking for some strange. Mr. Bowley convinces the police to release the bikers and to search for Diana. This is when this this is when things are ramping up. This mm-hmm. is when things the, the pace of the story is is quickening. Not that it was ever really slowly paced. I mean, it's only an hour and fourteen minutes long for God's sake. They can't be leisurely. Uh, and uh, Rieger, the Scott Glenn character, joins joins them. Uh, well, all the all the bikers do. Miss Parks and her uh, her helper, who's the the guy who runs the uh, the uh, gas station. Mm-hmm. They're given the task by the police of driving away to get assistance because phone lines are down, power's out. It seems like the gargoyles have, have done their best to make sure that uh, humans are uh, not going to be able to like call for help. And uh, I don't know if they... The movie doesn't tell us whether they knew what they were doing or if that was just an accident of them busting up the busting up the, the motel and flipping the car over and doing what they did to, to get the body back. They drive away to get assistance. And they say it's actually... And this, is, this, is, this will tell you the distances and what it was like in the New Mexico desert in the 1970s. It's going to take them two hours to get to, to the next town where they can get some help. They is in the boonies, folks. That's some isolation. That's way out in the middle of nowhere. That's Trimmer's level isolation, folks. <laughs> That's exactly what that is. Uh, uh, but then, of course, uh, the search party later finds uh, the two of them, uh, Miss Parks and the, and the guy who was driving the truck, they find the pickup truck empty and bloodied. I love the fact that it was just it was going in a circle there in the desert, mm-hmm. and they had to like jump in and stop the thing. And uh, they never we never find we never, we never see the the guy's body, but later on, Mrs. Park's body <laughs> ends up dangling from a telephone pole upside down. And that's a pretty creepy scene. And it's also the only scene where she's not drinking. 
Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, poor thing. It's probably what killed her. It, it was actually a pretty creepy scene. It reminded yeah, me in yeah. a way. You remember the scene in Monster on the Campus where you see the girl up in the tree? Yes. It sort by of hung, hanging by her hair. By her hair. Yeah. It's like suddenly this like really eerie moment jumps out. Yeah, yeah, and in Monster on the Campus, it's like that's the that's the one moment in the movie where you're just like, whoa, that's an image you're not gonna forget. Yeah, and this isn't it actually this isn't quite as strong as the Monster on the Campus image, but it reminded me of that. Like suddenly here's a dead woman hanging upside down from a telephone pole. That's that's pretty harsh. Well, I kind of wondered for a second, and I wish they had kind of pushed this. I it almost looks like maybe the original idea behind by hanging her upside down from the telephone pole was to have her with her arms straight yeah. out. To kind of give the impression of an inverted cross, but they don't pull the trigger on that. And they probably could have got away with that on TV. And I think they could have because the the argument would have easily been, "What are you talking about?" You know, even if you were consciously doing it, you know, just saying, "Well, what are you talking about? You're you're reading into this. That's this is just a dead body hanging from a telephone pole. Mm-hmm. This is not what you're trying to make this an inverted cross." But that that's part and parcel of a, of another little problem I have with this movie, which is from the intro. You get the impression that they're going to play with uh, some satanic imagery and some kind of mythological satanic stuff. That we're going to fold some satanistic imagery or some satanistic backstory into all of this. And they really don't. It's really kind of played pretty much as this is just a a natural species that has an odd gestation period. Mm -hmm. And their numbers aren't high. which Which is all well and good. But... I do, I do kind of wonder what it would have been like. In other words, if this is a script that was going to be made as an exploitation film for theaters instead of for the, for, instead of for television, they could have leaned into that satanic idea and had images like what we just discussed. You know, her arms straight out and being kind of an inverted cross image. But since they don't, every time I see something that could play into that but doesn't, it makes me wonder: was this a script that got altered? into a TV movie or not? I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Or is it just that, you know, you start playing with this kind of stuff and you start to shy away from the stuff that, you know, you know standards and practices is not going to let you do and you end up softening it in, in, in certain specific ways? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe. It's a possibility, I guess. Oh, and as yeah. an aside, during this whole scene, we, we do see that one of the bikers is wearing a really sweet Keep On Trucking t-shirt. <laughs> Oh, you know, it's the 70s. Yeah. As soon as you see that. And one thing that, that, that this is as good a place as any to put it in there, some of the uh, dirt bike riders, because most of them are all stuntmen, yeah. doubled as gargoyles. Oh, so, yeah, 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 yeah. Which, and the director on the commentary said that they had the toughest job because they're all wearing wetsuits yeah. in the desert. And that they had... They had to be sweating like crazy. Oh, yeah, it was a tough shoot for them, for sure. Oh, man. Glad they made it through. Yeah. God, imagine just as soon as, soon as there's a call a call for cut, everybody and their grandmother's reaching for a water bottle. Yes, yeah. quickly, quickly, quickly. Well, the gargoyle leader has a queen, and uh, she also has wings. And she informs him that the men, horses, and dogs are approaching the cave, and that many more eggs will hatch that day. And this is when we get a really good look. We've gotten a few looks so far at this point while we're in the cave, and they're keeping Diana prisoner there at the. Uh, the rather large eggs that seem to fill several areas of the cave of the cave, and this is when we get to see a few of these uh, these 
cute little baby gargoyles. Little baby gargoyles. Little we cute, get to see a few of them start to punch their way out of those shells. And, and they immediately strangle a cat. No. But they're, that, that seems great. I love how the yes. eggs are lit from within. And that's one of the moments there where you get sort of the sense of extra stuff with the gargoyle character. You can yeah. see them sort of nurturing the eggs and rubbing yeah. them. And like you can see there's some of the gargoyles are the keepers of the eggs and protect them. And right. And when one starts to punch out, you see like the, the one of the keepers kind of you know, put sliding bits of the egg to a side mm-hmm. to one side and wiping you know kind of this goo that's on one of them off and then picking it up and holding it like a baby. It's 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 pretty effective stuff. And once again, all these gargoyles, although it's very clear what they are, there's enough differentiation between their their looks to give you an idea that these are different gargoyles. In other words, mm-hmm. you wouldn't. You really wouldn't mistake two of them for being the same creature. Right. They're not like slee stacks, for instance, where right. they all look exactly the same. Each one of these are very different. And I think it's interesting that the female, uh, the leader's uh, mate, for want of a better term, I guess that's probably the best way to put it, uh, one of the things that differentiates her is not just the, the face being you know, somewhat different, but there's this... Odd, you know this like fur, fur fringe, yeah. this fur fringe around the neck and around the the top of the torso, which is uh, I think she's the only one that's got that. Am I wrong? You can see some little fur here and there, like around some of the ankles, maybe yeah. just like little yeah. tufts. But she's the only one with the most. And there's one really quick little bit that, as we were watching it, Laura kind of jumped at where she, the female gargoyle, you start to see some jealousy over Diana. Yeah. And Bernie Casey kind of hugs her and reassures her. And then as she walks away, it looks like Bernie smacks her on her little gargoyle ass. Oh, yes, she does. She does. Like, <laughs> hey, but it, maybe it's fine. And yeah. it's like, there's a, part of me, there's a part of me that sees that and goes, yeah, he's a football player. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what Laura was like, did he just smack her on the butt? That I it's think like, he did. Like, that's exactly what you would do. You're a football player. Yeah. As somebody who was a high school football player, you, you, hug, you hug your buddies after, after a good play to reassure them, and you slap them on the ass, and they move on. It's the there way it goes. Go. Of course, now all I can picture is that the, that series of uh, sketches done by Key and Peele, <laughs> the guy <laughs> addict, addicted to, to, to slapping ass, <laughs> which is truly fucking funny as hell. <laughs> Oh Lord, I gotta get that image out of my head. But I do think it's interesting that one of the one of the things that uh, the mate communicates to the leader is that one of the babies that is born is uh, a breeder, a winged breeder. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, it would appear that the reason she's the only one who looks the way she does is breeders are not as common as I'm assuming what the others, the ones without wings. Mm-hmm. I, I would almost think of them. They don't say this, but I could kind of think of them as drones, maybe. Yeah. Worker, worker bees to me, mm-hmm. or in, in a moment here, kind of cannon fodder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, as the uh, the humans find their way to the cave, the leader orders that the humans must be stopped in the desert. Over a dozen gargoyles charge the humans, and both sides battle it out. Uh, both sides take a lot of casualties. Cornell Wilde shows that he's pretty deadly with a fucking shotgun. He is a mean, mean gargoyle killing machine. Yes. But, of course, they uh, the gargoyles are uh, pretty good at this, too. I mm-hmm. mean, the, by that time, most of the bikers have decided they're going home. But there's two of them that are stuck around, Scott Glenn and other guy. And other guy bites it hard. Yes, he does. <laughs> well, the, uh, the leader takes Dr. Bowley to the cave and vows that this is the end of your age and here the beginning of mine. I keep interrupting you, right? And I'm sorry, but you're you're missing out on the coolest image in the whole movie. <laughs> oh, which, which one? It's when 
the gargoyle rides up with the wings. Oh, on rides a horse. up on a horse. <laughs> yes. He's clearly stolen the horse from the sheriff. Yeah. I want an action figure of the gargoyle leader on a horse. Oh, wow. Has there never been like a, a statue done for that? Probably there has to be for some like resin. For like $500 probably. Yeah, there has to be a resin kit or a statue or something. But and was, I'll be honest. It's an image worthy of a, of a Frazetta painting. It really is. It's a, It really is. It's one of those striking images. And you're right. To skip over that's a bad idea because that that... One image. There, there are three or four images in this: the eggs, mm-hmm. the birthing, the birthing scene. Those that sequence. There's imagery there that's really, really great. The first time at the uh, the gas station when they flip the car over, and you get a good look at uh, the leader gargoyle as mm-hmm. he's standing there. That's an impressive image as well. Uh, the image of the the skeleton at the beginning when we see it, you know, that the, the the gargoyle skeleton strung up there. That's a great image. But yeah, you're right. Probably the best of them has got to be him riding up on the horse. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, man, that, Frank Frazetta painted that. That'd be the best thing ever. Put that on the side of a van. Hell yeah, I'd wear that as a t-shirt. Yes, I would. Ooh, we're, you know what we need? We need, we need to convince Mark Maddox that it's in his best interest to paint that image. Yeah, that needs to be on the next issue of Scream. <laughs> The special gargoyles on horses. I, I, I guess if, if they'll put gargoyles out on Blu-ray, then there'll be a reason for him to do it just for the for the cover of the Blu-ray. <laughs> True. I'd, I'd buy the collectible slipcover edition. Hell yeah. Actually, poster. I think we both know we'd do that anyway. Holy, <laughs> <laughs> I think we ought to stop. Give the dog and the horses a rest. Uh, sick creatures. What kind of creatures? Yeah, what are we chasing? Well, there's one killed. I examined it. It's some form between reptiles and human. I think of a pretty high order of intelligence. At least they're well organized. Why haven't we seen them before? I don't know. But there have been outbreaks of things like this. You see them in the legends of a dozen different cultures. Stories, paintings, sculpture. From uh, ancient Egypt to Babylon. Yucatan, medieval Europe, and they always look the same. It's as if they've existed along with mankind from the beginning of time. They were, well, they were the evil one, you see, the demons, the gargoyles. What's that add up to for us? Well, I think we have the same creatures here. They show up, oh, about every four or five hundred years. Uh, I'm guessing that that's their incubation period. And the eggs are beginning to hatch again. Something like the 17-year locust. Yeah, something like that. Why'd they take Diana? Well, in legends, they've been reported to take human women. Ray, over here in the gully. Come on. Okay, so we have uh, the gargoyle leader saying, this is the end of your age and the beginning of mine, um, which means he's way out over his skis here because mm-hmm. <laughs> there ain't a whole lot of them left right now. But the, the eggs are hatching, and there are thousands. Correct. Although we don't see thousands, we see enough to kind of know, okay, okay, so there's a lot of these caves stretching yeah. back in here that, that have got a lot of these things in them. Well, this is the moment when the queen appears jealous of the leader's attention to Diana, and she leads Dr. Bowley to his daughter, as if, it's like, come on, Doc, let me let me take you to your daughter. I need you to, I need you to get that fucking whore out of my cave. <laughs> Homewrecker. Homewrecker, bitch. Oh, Lord. Um, and she gets the two of them together and then lets them escape. 
at this point, Scott Glenn's character, uh, he and the sheriff have uh, have gotten cans of gasoline and gone into the cave themselves. And uh, they, they're dousing the eggs with gasoline and they're attacked by several gargoyles. And uh, Scott Glenn gets to be a hero here. That's right. Flick, flicks, uh, flicks a lighter open and uh, torches them fucking gargoyle eggs and, of course, kills himself at the same time. Sadly. Well, he did have three gargoyles ripping on him so he probably yeah. was in trouble anyway yeah it's it's a sacrifice that you gotta gotta mm-hmm. be willing to take at that point uh when their leader realizes that his war is once again lost dr Bowley bludgeons the queen's wing with a rock so she cannot fly and so the leader must carry her away uh he flies away with her to create a new nest somewhere else and that's where the film ends and it was one of those Three Stooges endings where it's over. <laughs> yeah, I know. Smack. <laughs> well, I, w- I will say that I do wish that uh, the the gargoyle carrying his mate away at the end had been a more effective, uh, a more effective visual. Yeah. But it's not. It's it's not terrible. It's definitely what you would expect from that period, but I was hoping that they would kind of find a way for it to be more effective. Like maybe they would have employed since they they're showing us the shadow of them flying away. I was wondering if they wouldn't like spend a little bit of money and add some animation, maybe, so that the wings look like they were flapping instead of just obviously not. Well, now you watched it on YouTube. Oh yes, because it's actually like. I don't know. I guess maybe not a guy in a costume, but they've actually got a real gargoyle. I don't know if they had a helicopter carrying it. It's probably on a crane, I would guess. Could be, but yeah, it's still not flat. So. No, no. I, it, I just, I really, I really would have hoped if it were just like I say, if it were just a little bit bigger budget or maybe just more time being mm-hmm. able to be spent on everything. If it would, have, if it could have just looked a little bit better. But yeah, you're right. That movie just it just crashes to an end. That's it. <laughs> Almost all the gargoyles are dead, and the the leader flies off with his mate. We're done. And cops are coming because you know you could hear the sirens. Yep. So, which was one of those things that, as I watched the second time, because at first you're thinking they say there's thousands of eggs, but I only see maybe a dozen or so. Right. Then you think, well, and Scott Glenn only sets fire to those dozen, but then you think, well, these cops are coming. So, what other eggs are in there? They can go in there and bust up. So, figure you figure that's kind of you, you've kind of got to add that as yeah. a coda to this story because they definitely didn't have the time to, yeah. oh, to yeah. show it to us on screen which is a bit of a shame now here's a question that I've got for you and it's not something that it occurred that it occurred to me before this time watching it uh, does this feel like the setup for a TV series does this feel like a pilot movie and you know I never thought of it until you said that I, I don't know how you could make a different gargoyle. I don't know. Or, or weirder things have occurred. I mean, the, there there was the idea that they were going to turn Salem's Lot into a damn TV series when they yeah. made it when they made the miniseries in the late seventies. Well, Carrie, when they did the Carrie um, two part uh, miniseries that uh, they, oh the, in the early two thousands yeah yeah that was going to be a series. It's like I kind of feel it's because of that ending where you know the the main quote unquote monster bad guy is still alive and has escaped. Mm-hmm. You know, the plan has been thwarted, but Blofeld has escaped. True. <laughs> are we going to get a sequel, or was this, a, you know, was this a setup for some kind of ongoing battle between this this um, this writer and trying to chase down, like, nests of eggs? Because the mating couple did get away. And I could see where, I don't know if you could get a series out of that, but you could at least get a couple more movies. Yeah. And I could I could see a series with Cornell Wilde running into a different sort of a cult 
thing, you know, going on. But, of course, we got that with the Night Stalker not too many years after this. So Yeah, and I wish, it's the kind of thing where you wish we'd gotten it with the Norless tapes as well. Because yeah. that, that was set up to be a, the pilot mm-hmm. for a series that never came to fruition. But would have been interesting. But it just this is the first time watching it that I've ever had that feeling. And, it, and part of it is that abrupt ending mm-hmm. with a kind of open, you know, with the, the villain not being vanquished. And uh, it's kind of, kind of, I kind of go back and forth. I, I'm sure that there was nothing said on the on the commentary. No, track. not at all. Uh, yeah, or you would have gotten that out pretty quick. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, you gotta yeah. know. Yeah, the commentary track was pretty. There wasn't a lot of good stuff in there. It was okay. Pretty, it, you know, you didn't miss a lot. Was it moderated or was it just? It him? was just him. I think a good moderator, like somebody like Amanda Reyes, yeah, would have been if she'd been there probing this guy a little bit. I think it would have really gone some places that would have been a good idea but i think that pro- i think that was probably recorded before amanda was as widely known as she is it now, was which yeah is a it damn, was yeah. which is there's still there could have been somebody yeah well one last question just off the top of my head which is um we already talked about the design and they kind of a they're kind of a cross between the creature of the black lagoon and uh like a goth big bird i guess is the best way to put it <laughs> and uh the the look is the look is effective. The makeup is of course award winning, and it seems to me once again that if you spent that much money on those costumes, it would have almost been really smart to try to get a sequel out of this. Mm-hmm. Especially considering apparently it did really well. Oh yeah, it was a huge hit at the time, as I remember. And of course, it did well enough that it got released in Europe theatrically. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's one of those things where. Wow, it's like you've already broken the ground. You've already got the suits. You know, you don't have to spend as much money next time, surely. But this was the end point. This was it. This was it. Gargoyles is a one and done kind of thing. And uh, there's a part of it that kind of wishes it hadn't been. It's like uh, I'm not sure that they. I mean, I'm not sure a sequel would have been. You know, as glorious as say, you know, Jaws three. But, uh, <laughs> Well, what is really? <laughs> really, what is? How about Jaws Five? <laughs> oh well, yeah, I've got that waiting. Did you get the novelization of that? That I did. Right I haven't there? read it yet. I haven't either. I'm I want to watch the movie first because it wants to spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> I would want to read the book and have the movie spoiled. Yeah, that's right. I mean, because Bruno you know, Matai, God knows, he's got some cinematic sleight of hand to bring right. to, the, to bring wonder, to my attention. What, what tricks will the master be bringing to this table? <laughs> How flatly will he fuck this up? <laughs> but um, I guess that uh, the reason you probably wanted to cover this is that this this was probably a, a formative TV movie for oh, you yeah. as a youngster. Yeah. Now, um, you have definite memories of it, watching it when it first premiered. Uh, and I mentioned The Night Stalker and The Night Strangler. Um, I'm assuming you have memories of those as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember even the... Uh the commercials for the Night Stalker movie vividly because ABC ran a ton of them. And um, I can remember the dialogue that was in the commercials. And This nut thinks he's a vampire. He's killed four, maybe five women. <laughs> I love that stuff. Yeah. Well, the thing about uh, the TV movies of that period is that um, one of the reasons why television corporations started making movies is that once uh, the rating system came in for movies, um, the movies that 
were going to eventually show up on television were going to have to be severely edited. In some cases, editing them wouldn't make them viable fodder for television. There were just going to be some movies that you were just not going to be able to show on television because of the subject matter being covered. Mm-hmm. And so to fill those gaps is when the, the TV movie thing really took off. There had always been this format in television, but in the late 60s, in 70s is when it really got formalized as an alternative to the things that broadcast television was not going to be able to show. So for me, when I go back to these shows or when I discover a new one from the period of the 70s or 80s that I had never seen when I was younger, uh, one of the more fascinating things is how well does this movie make me forget that this is a TV movie? How effectively is this made? so that I stopped thinking about the fact that this was sandwiched in between commercials. And uh, there are long stretches of Gargoyles where I do forget that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, to me, is one of the highest compliments I can, play, I can pay to a movie of this type. Because if you make me forget that what I'm watching ain't going to breach certain restrictions, you've done your job well. Because mm-hmm. that means you're telling your story in a way that I'm getting lost in it and I'm not thinking about the things that you're going to have to shy away from because of standards and practices. So, I don't think Gargoyle is like one of my favorites, but it is one of those great little monster movies from the 70s that when we look back on it, I, I, it's like I can't imagine a film of this type being made today with that short a budget. No. I, can, I can imagine this kind of movie being made. I'm looking at you, Siffy Channel. <laughs> Because it would be Mecha Gargoyle versus yeah. Shark Goyle. Shark, shark Goyle, you know, versus, you know, pregnant halter top woman. I don't know. <laughs> but um, there's just something I, I do wonder. And this is, uh, I, I, I'm bad about posing these bizarre questions that I just kind of leap out at you. But do you think that the way we look back on these movies, these TV movies from the 70s when we were growing up and catching them for the first times, do you think that kids of the same age who are growing up with the Sharknado movies, you know, and, and that ilk of film made for you know, Sci-Fi Channel or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, do you think that they are going to have these kind of memories that they will, in other words, do you think 20, 30 years down the road, they're going to have those fond memories that they're going to look back on and they're going to want to revisit those movies? Do you think that they're made in such a way as to... Uh, to cause that kind of affection? Or is it more along the lines of uh, a nostalgia that would draw them back to it? Do you think that that's how, that, that will occur? The kids who are watching TV movies now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't think... I think that the the way the kids are now... Boy, that does sound like an old man there. But I think the way kids are now, entertainment's more disposable and it doesn't have as much of an impact, I don't think. For the most part. And because think, there's so much of it? Yeah. Yeah, maybe you're And right. I think also the TV movies now, what what are getting made, especially on like the sci-fi channel, most of them are just junk. There's some good ones on streaming channels, but I don't think... I think kids these days will have more of a looking back at... Of course, kids I'm talking about now are in their 20s, but kids who saw Harry Potter for the first time when they were six or seven... That's what they'll look back on with the same way that we look back at something like Gargoyles or the Night Stalker. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And, and that's a point that you've made there that I hadn't really considered, which is, yeah, back when we're talking about the 70s, there were the three networks mm-hmm. and maybe two, maybe two other channels if you were lucky, if you lived in a, in a metropolitan area that had like an independent channel and a PBS station. 
that's those were your options. Yeah, somewhere between three and five options mm-hmm. every day. And a movie like this shows up, and you're not going to see anything else like it for a while. For a very long while. That's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah, I guess that kind of does answer my question. Yeah, you're right. I I don't know. I think what they're going to be looking back at are things that are much larger, that have a much larger impact, that kind of can break through the the background noise of just mm-hmm. so many different choices. I guess. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's not a good or a bad thing. That's yeah, just, just a di- that's just a difference. Yeah, just how things are now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, on a one to ten scale, where do you put this? You know, this is a tough one because I'm seeing a lot of it through. Kids' eyes. Kids' eyes. Yeah, and yeah. and to me, it's like I was, when I was watching it with Laura, I said, just imagine me at age six eating this up like a big bowl of booberry. <laughs> <laughs> this is just the greatest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, if I were coming in flat, I would probably, you know, maybe a six, something like that. That's where I felt, was a six. But watching it with the memories of watching when I was a kid, it was, pops at like seven, seven and a half. I understand. I understand. Yeah, there's a lot of entertainment in there, but just as a movie, it's it's good. It's good fun, but it's certainly not, you know, it's, it's certainly not unassailable. There there right. are definitely there are definite flaws and choices yeah. that you kind of question. Yeah, but I still love the love the crap out of this thing. So I it's, think it's, it's just a, lot a lot of fun. fun. And I'm I'm a little shocked. Uh, I, I wonder if there's a Blu-ray eventually on the horizon. Because I, I'm a little shocked that there hasn't been an attempt to bring this out already. And I, it starts me uh, to wondering, it de- there's definitely an audience for it to sell. I wonder how well the DVD sold. So you know, Because anybody who's willing to put it out on Blu-ray is going to want the figures on how well the uh, the initial digital release did. Yeah, I know the first DVD went out of print and was pretty scarce for a while. And they brought it back. And I don't know oh, if so it was released twice on Yeah. That. Well, that's a good sign. Okay. And I don't know if it's still in print now or not. Um, I do not know. I know Hen's Tooth was who put it out. And, um, you know, they're not one of the larger. No, no, no. Very, very niche. But, you know, if Kino is releasing Killdozer. True. That's, that's, what, that's what's got me. That's where I was going. Is there a lot of obscure TV movies and not so obscure. Killdozer's not, Killdozer's not that obscure. But a lot of these are coming out on Blu-ray now. Mm-hmm. And, and I just and, pointed out to you one that I just picked up uh, from Kino called The House That Would Not Die with uh, Barbara Stanwyck. To be, it, was dire- it was directed by John Llewellyn Moxie, who uh, we know from the, from the Nightstone mm-hmm. movies. It's one of those things where it's just like, I did not know anything about this. But as soon as I saw this, I was like, well, I'm very curious to check this out. But one of the things I do wonder is uh, I notice on the Blu-ray for uh, The House That Would Not Die that it was a brand new 2K Master, and I wonder if there's a problem with um, securing decent elements to make a high-definition version of it. But, I, but this is all guesswork. I yeah, who no knows? But, but yeah, you would think if something like this, which not saying, this film. Yeah. not saying whether it's good or bad, but this is not a movie that made the same sort of impact that Gargoyles did. I mean, right. that's one of the movies that kids of that age still remember it. Right, and uh, you would think that a movie like that would get some type of a Blu-ray. So maybe, maybe it's coming at some point. I'm willing to bet. Well, I mean, we were talking earlier about the damn Lee Majors movie, The Norseman, coming out on freaking Blu-ray. So my God, that is my argument for everything will be on Blu-ray one day. Yeah, if that freaking lousy ass movie. Oh, now, hey, I love The Norseman. Oh, I do too. But we all have to agree that we love it. For the wrong reasons. But I, I just picture the trailer. Majors, Elam, the Norsemen. 
Was that really the trailer? No. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It should have been. <laughs> Jeez. See the weirdest Viking movie you're ever going <laughs> to contemplate. Six million dollar man versus Indians. With his season four porn stash. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, there's that too. God, so freaking weird. We've gone far afield. Folks, we want to thank you for listening to this episode of The Bloody Pit. We apologize for the various descents into madness that we took along the way. But, hey, uh, we didn't talk about porno movies least, least this time. So, but, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you thought about it. You thought about Damn it real hard. I see, missed my chance. Yeah, you did. I missed my chance. Yep. You could have it any time. Darn it. I did say Lee Majors in his porn stash. Which is as close as we got. Yeah. And now we're out of time. <laughs> so, once again, folks, if you've got any comments or suggestions, or if you just want to uh, deride us for being childish buffoons, write us. <laughs> that's, what, that's what our significant others are for. <laughs> yes, they do deride us for being childish buffoons, as well they should. Yeah, they're not wrong. <sighs> Rarely have people been so right. Yeah. Uh, the email address is thebloodypit at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Uh, check us out and uh, let us know what, what you think. Uh, if you uh, get this podcast on uh, a podcatcher that allows for comments, please leave comments about the show. Uh, let us know there what you think as well. And uh, the more comments you make, the more ratings you give the show, the more people see that we exist and listen to us babble. And this for want of a better reason to live is why we're here. <laughs> That's the saddest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Ain't it, though? 2020 is a fucked up year, buddy. That's true. That's <sighs> true. This actually does give me a reason to live. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, goody, I'll talk into a microphone again. Hey, it's rare that I see another human, so... Oh, well, that's... Is that good or bad? Wait. Well, yeah, it's, it's just you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Ah. I'm not... I shaved. I did, too. Ooh. I love you. (laughs) Well, folks, I am Rod Barnett. And I'm John Hudson. And folks, without his glasses, he's beautiful. (laughs) With my glasses, I'm a hideous fucking troll. (laughs) We'll see everybody later. Good night, everybody.